Psalm 33. Psalm 33. This morning in Bible Hour, we looked back in history as recorded in 1 Kings chapter 6 and 7 and learned of the siege of Samaria. Learned of some of the horrors that took place there. But we concluded in looking here in Psalm 33 and resetting our hope. And it's a perfect segue into the passage we're studying in 1 Peter. Because it has to do with troubles, calamities, problems, and rejoicing. Look with me as we read together Psalm 33. Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise is comely for the upright. Praise the Lord with harp. Sing unto him with a psaltery and with an instrument of ten strings. Sing unto him a new song. Play skillfully with a loud voice. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. He loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathered the waters of the sea together as in heap. He layeth up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever. The thoughts of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looketh from heaven. He beholdeth all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation, he looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashioneth their hearts alike. He considereth all their works. There is no king saved by the multitude of an host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. An horse is a vain thing for safety. Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us, according as we hope in thee. Lord, indeed, this is our prayer. As we consider the events of history, of how man has worked and moved and strategized, of how you have intervened, as we consider our own lives, the trials and troubles that we have, the joys and the peace that we have. Lord, in all of them, 
May we always, always rest in our hope in you. We're hoping in you. For your mercy is great. Your compassions are new every morning. We have great hope looking to you. And Lord, as we now continue in your word, as we seek to understand and for me to explain, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us and teach us all. And Lord, I pray that we all might be encouraged and admonished, that we all might today be rejoicing in you, for you have given us great and precious promises. And so we hope in you this day and in this moment as we look to your word and to you, our God. We praise you, Lord Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. The psalmist says to rejoice, to have joy that repeats. And it's fascinating that even in this context, it's in the context of trouble. Turning to 1 Peter, this letter written by Peter to a people in trouble, the admonition to rejoice is also given. And it's given in a time of trouble, a time of great persecution. Rejoice. Now, that's kind of a paradox, isn't it? When you're having problems, when you're having troubles, rejoice. I don't know, you've heard me talk before about being hangry. You know what that means, right? That when you're hungry, you get angry. It's really a very bad concept. And the reason is because sometimes when we're hungry, and I know this is stretching it, it's a trial. But really, in the midst of a trial, being hungry, it shouldn't result in being angry. It should result in rejoicing. Now you might say, preacher, you're an idealist. And you're right, I am. But you see, if our perspective and our focus, our heart and our mind and our eyes are focused in the right place, then even in the pangs of hunger, we can and will naturally rejoice. Now imagine, go back in time with me to when this letter was written. This letter was written to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. They're in Asia Minor. Rumors are spreading across the Roman Empire. Rome has burned. Nero has blamed it upon Christians. Have you heard the rumors? of what they're doing to Christians in Rome? They're taking Christians in Rome. They're tying them up to stakes. They're slathering them with flammable liquids and then lighting them on fire in the royal palace of Nero. And can you believe it? as they are about to be burned and as they're burning, they're singing 
They're singing. How can this be? In fact, records throughout history, even to our modern times, people who are being oppressed and persecuted because of their faith in Jesus Christ can face death with peace, and not just peace, but with rejoicing. How is this so? There's a witness of a testimony of a man who was burned at the stake in the 1500s. He was bound, and as the flames leapt forth, it burned away the ropes around his hands. And in excruciating pain, what came from his mouth was singing. The strangest sound to those who witnessed it. A voice clearly in the most unimaginable pain. Singing? How? How could this be? How could one who has been tortured and mutilated and abused simply for believing in Jesus look into the eyes of the monster abusing them and give forgiveness with a smile, with peace, and with joy. You know, sometimes we think of persecution, and it's been and dispensationalists, those who take the Bible and approach it as being understood normally in its literal normal sense, and understand how God has worked with different people throughout the ages in different ways. And as we look at eschatology and we learn of the great tribulation and the tribulation described yet future, sometimes the accusation has been leveled against us that we think that we won't have any persecution. That's not the case. We as Christians, we believe that we will be caught up with the Lord Jesus in the clouds and be delivered from the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble that is prophesied in Revelation, Daniel, and other passages throughout Scripture. But that does not mean that somehow we're exempt from persecution. We as Americans in this century don't understand it, because we have been in God's mercy and grace spared from it. But persecution, horrible persecution of the beloved has occurred for hundreds of years in all different parts of the world. And there's no guarantee it won't come here. In fact, in many ways throughout Scripture, the presumption is that it's a normal expected thing. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus, Paul wrote to Timothy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He said, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Peter later in this letter speaks of the fact when persecution comes, he says, think it not strange. It's almost expected. And the mercy we've experienced as a nation here in America, it's a, it's, it's a foreign reality. But that's not a guarantee. And so I wonder, 
we think about our trials and we get hangry. I mean, think about it. Yes, we have physical trials. Yes, we, we have different kinds of trials and troubles and temptations. I don't want to belittle any of the trials any of us are going through. But it could be a whole lot worse. And sometimes, the littlest of inconvenience causes us to become angry, causes us to become sulken, grumbly, discontent. We need a reset of our perspective, don't we? And by looking here into Peter, we can get it. We can have a renewed perspective as we understand and see what others have endured, what we may endure or are enduring. And how do we deal with it? And you know what's incredible? Is that the solution presented here in 1 Peter is applicable, is effective in the most horrific, terrible persecution. And the smallest of trials is missing lunch. It's just as effective in all perspectives. And so I wonder, do we allow it to be effective in our lives with our little problems? And in some ways, we have a blessing of practicing, of practicing our faith. Are we, in the little things, faithful stewards of the manifold grace of God? Because one day, perhaps, and perhaps sooner than any of us would like, real and earnest persecution may come. And do we have the perspective that was presented to these strangers scattered throughout Asia Minor? Let's read all of chapter 1, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to look specifically at verses 6 through 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now, for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness, through manifold temptations. That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom 
Having not seen, ye love. In whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he continues on to get really practical in admonishing us as children of God and those who are holy and set apart to him. Did you see all that was described here of joy? Did you see all that was described here of hope? Did you see all that was described of looking to the future, of having an expectation of a guarantee? Last time when we were here in this chapter, we looked at verses 3 through 5, which was a benediction, which is a declaration of blessing to God. For there it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it goes on and lists some of the incredible things for which we bless God. The reality of his abundant mercy, which has begotten us again. We bless him for the lively hope we have in Christ Jesus because of his resurrection from the dead. We bless God because we have an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for us we bless god because whatever we face we ourselves are kept secured guarded guaranteed by the power of god the omnipotent almighty all-powerful god through faith and it is unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last times so we have this salvation, which is an inheritance that we have in God. A resurrection is really the ultimate fulfillment of this inheritance and this hope of being resurrected and in the very presence and full of the fullness of God. And it is because we have this inheritance, we bless God. And then verse 6, that first word, ties the two ideas together. Wherein we have a blessed God who has given to us an inheritance, a salvation. And it is in this inheritance of a salvation wherein ye, Peter writes, greatly rejoice. You see, as we're going through life and we consider the realities 
of our inheritance. And we looked at that last week. Oh, how exciting that was to observe and to recount the inheritance we have through Christ Jesus. The salvation we have. And we, it causes us to greatly rejoice. Not just to rejoice, but to greatly rejoice. And it's an exceeding joy. But you know, this is being written to people hunted and persecuted, despised and beaten down. And you know, those things are really good at distracting us from our inheritance. They're really good at distracting us from keeping our eyes fixed upon the author and finisher of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the inheritance he has for us reserved in heaven. It, it causes us to be distracted from the reality that we are kept by the power of God. Have you ever thought of that? How many things and problems distract us or cause us to lose focus of these realities? Keeping in mind these realities will cause us to greatly rejoice. But it's fascinating. Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit knows the hearts of man, anticipates the fact that there are people who are going to receive this letter and they're going to hear this and they're going to be excited about this. But their manifold temptations, their heaviness and problems are weighing heavy. And the Holy Spirit anticipates that and directly addresses it. For he says in verse 6, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. That the trial of your faith may come about. These manifold temptations, the word manifold there is fascinating. It really carries the idea of all the manifold colors flashing forth from a rainbow. Multicolored. And we're not talking about like my pen. I've got in my pen blue, black, red, and a pencil. No, no, no. We're talking about manifold like all the colors in the spectrum and in the color wheel. Manifold temptations, it's, it's, it's everything. It's from the big, big stuff to the little, little stuff. It's, it's all shades and colors of troubles and temptations and trials, whether they be of the flesh or of the soul. It's encompassing everything. That's the idea here with manifold. Oh, and by the way, just a little hint. This word is also used throughout the New Testament to describe lusts. In our hearts, we have desires, lusts, and they're very colorful. And like little children, we like colorful things. But no matter what those temptations or lusts are, um, there's another context in which this word is used in our New Testaments. In fact, it's used by Peter. Not only does he talk about these manifold, manifold 
temptations. These multicolored, every spectrum of the color wheel of all different kinds and shapes and intensities of temptations. And I don't mean just temptations to sin. I speak of all trouble and problems included, including temptations to sin. The word is used over in chapter 4 and verse 10 of guess what? The grace of God. Isn't that fascinating? We have temptations that are of all the spectrum of the colors. We have lusts that are of all the spectrum and colors. And the grace of God can be there for every one of the, all the spectrum of color. So when we read of this manifold temptations, let's not forget that we also have the grace of God in dealing with them. And the grace of God is just as manifold. It is just as colorful and diverse. And so we have these temptations. And we're supposed to, or we, we greatly rejoice in them. It's kind of interesting, verse 6. You notice it's not an imperative. I'm telling you all and talking about it as if it's an imperative. Later on, it is an imperative. In verse 8, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. But as it begins in this conversation here, it's not an imperative. You know what an imperative is in grammar? I wonder, Elijah, do you know what an imperative is? It's a command. That's what an imperative is. But here in verse 6, it's not. Down in verse 8, it is. It's not an imperative. But what's interesting is that it's just assumed. I think there's significance to that. It would be one thing for the, the writer to come through here to declare this wonderful inheritance that we have, this lively hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And then to say, now you rejoice because this is the way it is. He doesn't start that way. He just assumes you will. That tells me how great this lively hope is. This lively hope is so great and powerful that it doesn't even, it's just assumed that it's going to result in great rejoicing even in the midst of manifold temptations. Notice here that these manifold temptations are described as now for a season. For a season. And notice, if need be. Now, for a season is interesting because that's what we've experienced and seen throughout history. The seasons of persecution. The places of persecution. This is not a season in America of persecution. Now, you may be fearful of persecution as you may read the news or hear things, but it's not really a season of persecution. I don't know whether or not it may need be. Need be, that's an interesting phrase. If it need be, um, do we really need persecution? Do we? Well, as we begin to see how God uses persecution throughout First Peter, you may find that maybe I do need it. This may seem strange to you. Two of my brothers were in Russia several years ago after um, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and there was actually quite a bit of freedom in Russia. Um, nothing actually still compared to, to what we have here, 
but there was a relative great freedom compared to what they had before. And there were many, many, many of the beloved saints who were older, who had lived under severe persecution, who actually, in some ways, longed for its return. You know why? Because the church, in the peace and relative peace and freedom that they had, had become lazy and lethargic, had become friends with the world. Whereas before, it was a clear-cut mark. You couldn't be friends with the world because the world was hunting you down to kill you. And so there was a clear demarcation. There were many who need be saw it as a refining, refining device, which we're going to learn about a little bit more here as we go on, within the church. And so, Peter here is writing, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of the inheritance that you have, which is going to naturally result in you and I rejoicing greatly, even though we have manifold temptations. And let's keep in mind that the manifold temptations are just for a season. Do you know how short our life is in perspective to eternity? Imagine with me for a moment, if you could imagine a time scale of eternity. Okay? Now, for God, eternity has no beginning or end. For us, we got a beginning. So imagine the beginning point, and then imagine it's just going on and 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 on forever. Now, how long do you see on this timeline your life? Is it here? That's a ludicrous question, isn't it? I couldn't even draw life on the timeline. If eternity is eternity and it never stops and keeps on going, what is this season? What is this life here on earth? It is a very short season. It is but a very small speck on the timeline of eternity. I love timelines. You all know that, right? Timelines. I can't draw this timeline for you. I can't draw it because it's a speck. It's hardly not even a speck. That causes us to recognize that even if need be in this life, it's just but for a season in these manifold temptations. And when we do go through these manifold temptations, whatever they may be, however big or small they may be, let us recognize what it is doing. Remember why the elder, beloved brethren in Russia longed for persecution to come. In fact, one of the old ladies that my brothers met says she prays every day that persecution would come to America because she was so horrified at what America, what Christianity in America looked like. And knowing what it had done in her own lifetime in Russia, hoped for it for America so that America could faith could be tried and refined. And that's exactly what Peter writes of here. When this is happening, it is for a purpose. It is a trial. It is a test of your faith. So here we find out that these trials that are heavy, these temptations and problems are there to test and to strengthen 
our faith. And then look how our faith is described. Our faith is described as being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire. Now, think about it. It takes an awful lot to destroy gold, doesn't it? I've never tried. It's too valuable to try. But gold, how do you destroy gold? Well, you can, in fact, actually one of the things that makes gold more valuable is to heat it up and melt it down. I wonder how many of you were here a few weeks on family Bible time when we watched those videos about melting down silver, trying silver. A few of you. It's up on the podcast if the rest of you want to watch it. We looked at some of the lessons of the refiner's fire and how it relates to silver and saw how silver is refined. And it was amazing at how much dross, how much we called junk was in the silver till they actually got down, you know, wheelbarrows and wheelbarrows of, of ore and so forth, um, melted down and melted down and melted down repeatedly, ended up resulting in only a little triangle of silver like this. It was amazing um, videos to watch of how they did it and learning of what it meant. And it's some of the spiritual significance, and it's related here as well. You know, mixed into our lives is a lot of dross. Remember those videos, all the junk in there? All the junk that had to be burned up, then had to be scraped off? So often in our lives, what we have is pseudo-faith, that's fake faith insincere faith, things we might call faith. But when it's really tested and tried, is not faith at all. It's removed, but it leaves the faith that endures. That's fascinating. He's comparing faith to gold. But then he says there's no comparison. Isn't that interesting? He says gold perisheth, but not your faith. Not your faith. Now that's interesting. Gold perisheth. I tried to do a little bit of research to see how exactly gold can perish. And the best that I can learn, and I'm not a metallurgist to learn this, maybe some of you could help me find it or help me do some research, if there's a way to actually vaporize gold. I mean, I'm, I, I know there theoretically is, but is it, I mean, do they do it? Uh, gold that perisheth? And, and we view gold as, as a precious metal that's enduring. It's enduring. But our faith is more precious than of gold. We consider gold here as gold that perisheth. But there's still a trial by fire. A trial by fire. And this is not new within the whole context of the scriptures. In fact, throughout the scriptures, we read of God using this analogy of a refiner's fire the metallurgist who is heating up the precious metal to burn out and to remove impurities as how God works in our lives. And in fact, God explicitly describes that he does this in a few occasions using affliction. When he's speaking to the nation of Israel in Isaiah 48, verses 10 through 11, he says to them, Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver, I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. Affliction. Persecution is his fire. And he says it was for mine own sake. Even for my own sake will I do it. For how shall my name be polluted? And I will not give my glory unto another. 
as people were mixing their faith and religions. And God says, oh, no, no, no. You need to be refined. So is true for us. That's what Peter is talking about. And it recurs throughout the scriptures. In Proverbs 17, 3, it is written, the fining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold. But the Lord trieth the hearts. In Psalm 66, verse 10, it is prayed, for thou, O God, hast proved us tried our faith. Thou hast tried us as silver is tried. Speaking of a furnace of affliction. Job, boy, did he have manifold temptations. Temptations impacting him in all the colorful places of his life, right? This is what he wrote. But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Remember those videos? Have you seen them? Of the silver before it's been refined? Full of junk. Full of junk. God wants to refine us. And one of his ways of doing it is through affliction and trials. Manifold temptations. In James chapter 1 and verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive a crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Well, let's look back here at 1 Peter. When we think of that crown of life for the one who endures this, here it describes the trial of your faith, and your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, and your faith, though it be tried with fire, that might be found unto three things. Do you see them? Your trials, these manifold temptations are coming to, it's a fire to refine you, to purify you, to try you, so that your faith, you, might be found unto three things. And look at these three, it's fascinating. Unto praise and honor and glory. Now, that's amazing. It's interesting when you compare it to gold. First gold I ever owned was my wedding ring. And you know what? Guys don't have this the same as girls, but when I was first married, people'd look at my ring and they'd congratulate me. They'd praise my ring. My ring received honor. It never comes off. It's got the position of honor staying with me all the time. And it has glory. It's beautiful. Gold. That's how we view gold. But gold is something that perisheth. Ah, it perishes. It's, it, this and the glory of all of this is nothing compared to the human individual and his faith that has been refined by God. Also resulting in these three things. Praise, honor, and glory. And what's amazing is you think of these things, you wait, wait a minute. Those are attributes. Those are adjectives describing God. That's interesting. Praise. Have you ever thought of praise? Did you know in Matthew 25, Jesus told of 
a faithful steward. And when that faithful steward returned as one who had faithfully administered his work, what did the Lord and in the parable a representative of God say to that one? He gave him praise, didn't he? He gave him praise. He said to that good and faithful servant, well done, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Interesting, you have the concept of of reward, we have a concept of praise, and we have the concept of joy. All together in that parable. There is a parable that I'm sure had special significance in parallel to 1 Peter chapter 1. The stewardship of suffering. Have you ever thought of that? That God give you a stewardship of suffering. That your faith might be refined. It's interesting. You're here in 1 Peter. Peter talks a little bit about this a little bit later on. Turn with me over to chapter 2 and verse 20. There it says, For what glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye take it patiently? Basically, he's admonishing you, if you're going to suffer, don't suffer as an evildoer. But if you suffer as a Christian, how good is that? But what is a big deal if you, you can ab- are able to handle suffering for your own failures, sins, and crimes if you take it patiently? But if and when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. When we suffer and we do well, taking it patiently, which is only possible through faith, it says here that this is acceptable with God. And that word acceptable is the Greek word charis, the word grace, also translated as favor and also translated as giving thanks. There is a praise. There's an accommodation, there's an acceptance of the one who endures this, these manifold temptations. Right here, this is acceptable. Think worthy of God. God thanking us. That's a different perspective. Honor. Who are we to receive honor? Aren't we the ones who ought to give honor to God? Honor. This carries the idea of receiving rewards. Of receiving rewards. And we actually find throughout Scripture that God wants to give rewards. In Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12, Jesus says, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, it carries in the idea of suffering and rewards and a position of authority, which is also was communicated back over in, in uh, Matthew 25, there when we had the idea of um, enter, thou, thou shalt be ruler over many things. And in, in 2 Timothy 2.12, it says, if we suffer... 
we shall also reign with him. Reign is in rule with him. Rewards and positions of honorable rulerships, authorities. In fact, there's a statement made that we shall judge angels. That's a position of honor. And the one who is the one who, though is, whose faith is tried in this way, these manifold temptations, his faith is tried this way that it brings forth praise and honor and glory. Now, just so you can get a perspective of all of this, all of this is not just in the light of the right now. It's an anticipation, an anticipation of the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ when Christ Jesus comes back, when we are resurrected. That's the anticipation of when this is fulfilled and the expectation of it. Well, when that happens, what will happen? Well, beloved, it tells us in 1 John 3, 2, beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he, that is Jesus, shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And who is Jesus? None other but the one who is of all glory of glories. In fact, it was ascribed of him in John as John 1 as being full of glory. And we're just said to be like him. This trying of our faith, this trying of our faith is to result in us as being and our faith coming forth and shining unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So these manifold trials, these manifold temptations that we have are but a for, for a season. And get your eyes off of the manifold temptations and refocus your eyes upon the inheritance, the salvation, and the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. There is how your faith will be refined, though it be with fire, if needs be. And he goes on, because you might be tempted to say, oh, but I, where am I, what am I? Well, how many of you have seen Jesus? You accept this by faith, that Jesus died for you, was buried and rose again, that, that Jesus has saved you, that Jesus has reserved for you in heaven an inheritance, that Jesus has promised that he will come back even though you haven't seen him. You didn't hear his very promises directly from his lips. Jesus, verse 8, having not seen, he commends these believers, these beloved strangers, these elect, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, it is by faith that we look to this resurrection. It is by faith that we look to this appearing of Jesus Christ. We don't see him coming through the clouds right now ever so life, through life. It's by faith. It's by believing. And for here it says, in whom, though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. 
So you're right now in the midst of manifold temptations. Problems and troubles and everything and temptations. As colorful as the rainbow in variance. And you rejoice. Because you have an inheritance and because the one who guarantees that inheritance is returning for you. This you believe. You walk by faith. You live each day trusting, believing in these promises. And it results in joy. Joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. In the midst of the fire, there is glory. And there is joy that is indescribable. Of the hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of records of Christians persecuted for their faith, who have exhibited joy. Psychologists have evaluated it. Lots of people have studied it. It's unspeakable. It can't really be explained. I mean, we can give a theological answer. But in some senses, it's unspeakable. It's, there's, it's, a, it's a paradox beyond comprehension. And it is full of glory. In fact, many times throughout history, we read accounts of the persecutors, those who are torturing Christians, in witnessing this unspeakable joy and glory, have their own consciences pricked. And the Holy Spirit uses these experiences to humble them that they come to Christ. They come looking for this one in whom there is a lively hope. And keep our eyes fixed on that. And that revelation of Christ in verse 9, receiving the end of your faith. The end of your faith. Even the salvation of your souls. This is the wrapping up of it. You know, they're in a situation to fear a lot of people who will harm their body. But here is a recollection of this all. Fear not those who can hurt the body. But fear the one who has the authority to cast your soul into the lake of fire. Here, there is a salvation of our souls. This is the climax of our faith, our salvation. It comes at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So let's keep our eyes fixed on his appearing so that no, no matter what we face, we can rejoice. We can rejoice. This afternoon, we're going to come back together and observe communion. And we're going to jump over into 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 13 where it talks of the sufferings of Christ and parallels it back to us. And it speaks of the glad, exceeding joy we can have. And so this morning as we look at all of this, I don't know what your little or big Giants are enormous. Manifold temptations are. But Jesus does. The Holy Spirit does. Your Father in heaven does. And this morning I admonish you to turn your eyes from the manifold temptations and look back at verse 3. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise him this morning. Rejoice in him this morning. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Good God, we praise you this day. You are almighty. You are all-powerful. You are sovereign. You are the lover of our souls. You are our redeemer. You are our friend, our papa. You are our greatest treasure and hope. Today I pray that each one of us, as believers, would turn our eyes upon you, focus upon you as the author and finisher of our faith. Trust you this day and rejoice and praise and bless you for you are the one who is worthy of praise, honor, and glory. Lord, we look to that day. We long to hear you say those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Lord Jesus, on that day, we will put our crowns before you. As whatever praise and honor we might receive, we reflect back to you, for indeed you alone are worthy. And we praise you this day for the lively hope that we have. Dear Holy Spirit, we pray this morning for those here in this room who have not been born again, who have not received your salvation, who do not have an inheritance. Lord Jesus, may today you draw them to yourself. May today they believe in you and become joint heirs with you to the glory of God the Father. Lord Jesus, we commit ourselves to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.